Last week on The Transformationist, the topic of criticism versus critique came up in my conversation with April Diaz about mentors and guides and how we can invite people into our lives to speak with clarity and wisdom and sometimes constructive criticism on how we can continue our transformation journeys. This week, I went back to the source and we invited Jeff Crabtree, who first appeared on the show Season 1, Episode 5, to talk with us again about this idea of how we can use critique constructively but the difference between the two and how we can listen and lean in to those critiquing voices in our life that actually can help sharpen us and make us better. It's a pleasure to have Jeff back on the show. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Are you thirsty for inspiration and curious about the life-changing process of transformation? Welcome to The Transformationist. Whether you already know the transformation you're looking for or you're looking for guidance on the way there, these stories of hope will give you practical tips, plenty of encouragement and an invitation into real, life-giving transformation, whether you're transforming culture or becoming more yourself. Your story is welcome here. And so in this week's episode of The Transformationist, a very special return appearance from uh, one of my very favourite Australians, Mr. Jeff Crabtree. Uh, welcome, sir. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks, Tash. Yes, it's lovely to be back. It's lovely. It's an honour to be back, given that there's nobody else in that category. <laughs> and look, and it's really because you are you are absolutely brilliant, but I am a subscriber to... Um, to your Zebra Collective uh, emails, which I consider to be, and I know that I said this on the last episode, but I consider it to be probably one of the best things that lands on my inbox on a daily basis. And one of them landed into my inbox um, right before an episode um, that I was, an interview I was doing with April Diaz um, just last week. And it was so, it struck me so deeply that we ended up talking about it on the episode and I immediately then had to reach out to you to talk about it because you sent me an email um, that said, uh, now, and I might get this wrong because I got it wrong the other day, but basically said um, what I thought it said was that criticism hurts more than encouragement heals, by which I thought you meant that actually sometimes um, sometimes a little bit of pain is worth it um, because it can actually do more good than encouragement. And so I reached out to you with this, what I felt was a profound thought, um, and you corrected me, which was excellent and brought us to this conversation. Um, so what was what was the email <laughs> actually saying? Yeah, no, that's what it actually said. Criticism hurts more than encouragement heals uh, is what the actual email said. Uh, the, the difference between... Um, the two things that we were where we, we got to mm. in that in the that was a Marco Polo discussion um, uh, was because your point was that you know criticism is helpful because it really helps us to understand ourselves from other people's perspectives and and then in our discussion I came back and said look I make a big distinction between criticism and critique because uh, it seemed to me that the sort of thing that you – I don't know, I didn't hear the other podcast, but you, what you might have been canvassing is the notion that we need uh, feedback from other professionals. Yes. And, 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 and so that was, where, that was where our Marco Polo discussion 
landed. And then he went, right, podcast again. So so here we are. Here we are. Which is which is brilliant. Well, um, so f- first, before we before we leap into dissecting the whole thing, because I, I want to tell you a little bit about the conversation that I was having with April and how we got into then um, this idea of you know criticism versus critique. Because I think you've got a unique ability to speak into that, both as as a musician and a producer. So somebody who you know, in a very professional level, is required to deal with critique. Um, but I'm also just curious to know um, how are things because when we last spoke, um, you were diving into um, the PhD work and and you were um, going deeper and deeper into this idea of, you know, what does health look like or what does health look like in the creative industry? So how are things? Tell us first and foremost. Yeah, well, that's a bottomless pit. <laughs> that, that's a bottomless pit there, Tash. The, um, uh, the PhD is a bottomless pit. I mean, I'm actually, uh, where that's at is um, I've completed um, collecting data. I've got you know, maybe a handful of online surveys. So if there's anybody out there listening who's in music, who's been experienced harassment, then www.musicharassmentresearch.org, um, ten, you know, takes 10 minutes. I'm looking for about another, you know, five or six online surveys. Okay. Uh, but I have um, sort of, I, you know, maybe something like 50 hours, close to 50 hours of interview tra- interviews and transcripts that I'm reading. Um, so every time I listen to one and go back, it sort of takes me back into that situation and my own mental health. <laughs> Is it real? Um, uh, because I'm hearing these stories of profound uh, distress um, and profound inequality and disadvantage. Um, and so I'm sort of I'm in the process really at the moment of reading that and just going um, – you know, just, you know, trying to work out what the big themes are. Mm. Um, the actual work of the Zebra Collective uh, wider than that is is going well. Um, you know, we've been, we've, you know, we've had a major mu- contract with a major music company since last year um, and we're looking at who else would like to take us on for um, co- consulting in the area of w- the well-being of creative thinkers. I've got a Julie's appearing at a, a, uh, a major media conference media and arts conference in um in melbourne in a couple of weeks um i've spoken at a small arts related conference here in sydney in early january the year started pretty pretty quickly really having a chance to um i had two weeks off in new zealand can you believe it <laughs> where once again where once again our paths did not cross <laughs> Once again, it's our paths didn't cross. But, you know, our paths would have crossed if you, like me, were climbing up what amounted to, to a near vertical cliff um, in the in the fjordlands to sort of view this glacial lake that is only accessible by a near-death experience. Um, we came back straight back from that and had uh, – and, and was, we were straight into it. So generally, I mean, the, it's uh, – the business of trying to help people with um, – understand well-being for creative thinkers is a uh, it's a large undertaking so um i feel a little bit like don quixote really um <laughs> I, I don't you know as in I, I, am i taking am i being am i deluded am i am i just charging at windmills or is this really a noble 
noble pursuit. Well, you know, it's noble. No, it's noble. It absolutely is. It has to be. It has to be. Otherwise, we wouldn't. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't lose the people that we lose, and we wouldn't um, be be wrecked with the kind of you know. Uh, subjective, coercive manipulation and um, dark, seedy underbelly of uh, the creative arts. So it is noble. It must be noble because something well, must be done. There it's- you go. See, see, I, see, here am I in my little studio slash office racked with self-doubt and then I get on a podcast with you and the first thing you do, part introduction is encourage me um, and then just brings us full circle to, <laughs> to the subject matter because <laughs> suddenly I'm feeling like, yeah, that your that your critique of my work. You know, you're a professional, and so that suddenly what that does is just that makes my day. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm I'm pleased and delighted to have done it. So, um, speaking of the subject of hand, let's get into it. Um, so I was I was interviewing April Diaz, who also works um, in the space of, of transformation and coaching, as I do, uh, and I specifically was wanting to talk with her about the the importance and the role of mentors and guides. You know, we kind of dove a little bit into Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, the idea that mm. you know th- that that at moments of crucial interruption, um, there yep. are people that we need to lean on, um, and yep. and then where that conversation went was, you know, what's the difference between what's the difference between because we get quite we get quite real uh, and so we were discussing you know how important it is to have people in your life who will call you on your shit you know who will say hey 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 actually I think you're stepping out of line here not just be the people who offer you know the encouragement the encouragement the encouragement um, and so that was where I mentioned this this email and this thought that was then reverberating um, because part of then our conversation around the importance of mentors and guides is is actually how do you do how do you do the hard work of inviting people to step into your space enough to give you that criticism that whilst it might hurt can actually help you be better and yep. that was that was where we got and i'm not sure that we landed on an answer which is why i wanted to have the conversation with you because i, I think you've got some insight that's great. I was wondering what April thought. Um, well, you know, it was it was it was interesting because, as in her experience, she's a very uh, she's a very bold, kind of confident person, and so she's really fostered relationships whereby people have permission to speak in, but they're people who have you know proven and built trust over the years, um, and so when we then got to this point of you know, trying to talk about, well, what do you do? How do you, how do you put yourself in a space where you can receive criticism um, without defense? That was really where we landed. And we didn't find an answer for, um, for the other, simply because that's not really, that's not really her story yet. Um, and so I, yeah, hence I, hence I threw the doors open um, to you to say, hey, I think that this is important. I think it's an important part of the work of transformation. Um, but there, but there's this, there's a practice to it. I'm not sure if it's a skill. Um, I don't know if you ever get good at hearing criticism. Um, but I think it's a practice, and I think that it matters. And so, you know, I'm I'm curious to uh, to know what you think and what and what input you got. You've got. Yeah, I mean, it came from um, watching firsthand really unhealthy cultures where creative people were being cut down. And it seemed to me, what seemed to me obvious in the environment that I that I was in, is that you would you would the performances 
and I'm not talking about musical performances, but the actual contributions and the performances that people would contribute to an, to anything at all, any endeavour, were much stronger, much more committed, much more um, true and richer and more amazing when people felt they were working in an environment of encouragement, affirmation, and and, and we're all in this together. That kind of band of brothers slash sisters kind of idea. Um, and what I was seeing persistently was a fear-driven culture in which anybody who stepped you know stepped out of line was being cut cut down. And uh, so what people were still contributing, and they they were still showing up and delivering what they had to deliver. But the the underlying their underlying motive was was fear that they would be exposed or humiliated. Um, in fact, I saw a very, very public version of it, you know, where in a large-scale rehearsal, about 150 people, major event, and, and the guy who was directing uh, the entire event was getting frustrated that nobody was listening to him. Uh, a lot of the reason that nobody was listening to him was because a lot of what he had to say was just twaddle, you know, it was rubbish. Um and self-aggrandizing. So, you know, he was sort of getting ignored justifiably, but he did actually at some point lose his, you know, his SHIT and say, look, you know, the next person to, who's not paying attention when I'm speaking, I'm going to make them run around the building five times. <laughs> I'm, uh, you weren't at primary school at the time, surely, because that's... It's a well, real primary school kind of thing. And then, sure enough, there was somebody who wasn't paying attention, but, you know, justifiably. There was a justifiable reason. And so they were inside the building. This is a large public space. You know, they were running around in front of the other 150 cast members. Um, and it was sort of... I mean, if it had been me and he told me to do it, I'd have just said, I'm out of here. See ya. Find somebody else. <laughs> Uh, that would have been my response. I, I, I'm not sure why the person agreed to be humiliated and subjugated that way. Right. Um, but I, I think it was out of that moment when I thought I started pondering um, the kinds of things that drive us to, um, particularly those of us in creative industries or anybody who is trying to make anything, any trying to make anything, something out of nothing, mm. which is just about everybody these days. Um, you know what, what? What drives us? You know, and our our passion drives us, uh, our convictions drive us, um, um, and I think to a certain degree, we're, we're all motivated in some way, shape, or form by some level of approval. Um, and you certainly want the things that you make to get traction and be received and accepted and taken on board by your audiences. So um, that seems to be the overall dynamic. The reason that the, you know the reasons that you that we want you'd want to make something. What's really big about that is I think the passion and the, the deep sense of personal commitment and involvement that is required to make something out of nothing. Mm. You know to you know to dream the impossible dream. You know to you know to to sort of try and reach the unreachable. I felt like what mostly then motivated the email was that thinking about how extraordinarily powerful it is creating a positive environment rather than a negative one uh, and, and implicit in that idea is this is a, was a specific idea about criticism that I had which was the notion of 
um, an uneducated, uninformed opinion, which in my mind is what happens all the time. I feel as if uh, there's sort of like a kind of a gigantic cancerous growth on the television and media landscape in Australia today. I hope it hasn't come to New Zealand, but um, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's worldwide, right? I mean, and it's the, it's the reality television, which makes it, uh, which makes people uh, tune in every, every week because of the artificially generated um, drama that's engineered. And what you actually have is a bunch of amateurs, people who, who shouldn't be on television, and they're there proclaiming their opinions. Uh, and, you know, and, and their reactions and their actions are sort of quite extraordinarily un, uh, ill-informed. And I feel like that's, um, that's what criticism is, really. It's the ill-informed ideas of the general public. And I feel like if you're actually making something, there's a degree of acceptance that whatever you do, if you're making art, for example, or if you're making food or if you're making film, making music, not everybody's going to like what you do. So there are people who are just going to not like it. Um, and some of the ways in which people don't like it is that they say they hate you. Um, it's nonsensical, really, uh, but it's classic, um, you know, it's classic reality television-induced kind of Thinking, which is you are everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's what criticism is. The difference between um, critique and criticism comes down to the level of professional um, engagement and knowledge and understanding that the person offering the insight has. So there's one thing to be told uh, as the uh, let's say I'm let's say I write a piece of music that's a it's a score for a a film, um, and it's one thing to be told by, a, 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 let's say, a truck driver uh, who saw the film, got you know, got to wherever he was going, watched the film, and hated the score, didn't like it, thought it was really crap. It's one thing to be told that, which is like, okay, fair enough, you didn't like it. It's another thing to be told that by the head of the Australian Guild of Screen Composers. <laughs> <laughs> But the qualification of the opinion is everything. The qualification, in some regards, the qualification of the opinion is everything. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, can I say that I feel like this probably goes to a larger question about how creativity works in society? A absolutely. Um, yeah. And so how it works in society is that you know you come up with a really good idea, you think um, something that's you never been seen before, never been heard before. Um, and then you put the idea out there. The, the way that any idea, any new idea gets into the public arena is if somebody from the group of people who are sort of currently the gatekeepers for that area check it out and go, oh, yeah, wow, that's great. It's, um, they're the people who decide uh, what what makes it? Does that make sense? They're the people. It's like the equivalent. They're the equivalent of the people who, the, who's the, who's mm -hmm. able who's able to green light a movie. Who's able to say um, this book needs to be published? Well, data scientists basically. Well, uh, and the, well these days, data scientists. Yeah, um, <laughs> but data scientists who can predict the opinion of the common people, primarily, right? Right. I'd say that's the twenty first century answer. Somewhere in mm. there still. Is a group of people who, who have a good sense 
of what's what's in the zeitgeist. They're act- mm-hmm. They actually have a good sense of what's in the zeitgeist. They have a good mm. sense of what people are looking for, what they want. And they also have a good sense of what makes great quality. And I think part of that sense comes from long experience in the field, long experience working in the discipline, enough experience of looking at what's good and what's bad to be able to go, yeah, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Mm. Um, and you don't come to that straight away. It's a little bit like, um, you know, putting a well-peated single malt in front of a kid who's only drunk Coke and then asking him to go, what do you think? Um, it's, a, it's a developed the, the, the sense of taste that you need uh, to be able to judge good from, from bad is a developed thing. Mm-hmm. How did you know that I was currently uh, drinking a peated Balvini double wood? It's delicious. Uh, I didn't know that you were actually doing that, but I mean, I, the other thing is, I tend to send emails that are reading everybody's mail. I have got when you when you sent the email, say, "What are you reading my mind?" Um, I had I've got a lot of people who email me back. Go, "What are you reading my mind today, or what?" Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, no, I just feel like um, maybe that's an example of why I'm good a good person to offer critique. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, it's interesting as you describe that and you talk about longevity and you talk about the development of taste because I just watched the Grammys show um, yeah. here in here in the States just last week or whenever it was. Um, and I didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing, but there's a reason why the Lifetime Achievement Awards, apart from, you know, the key being Lifetime, but there's a reason why some of those Lifetime Achievement Awards go to figures like... Um, Dolly Parton, uh, just this, just, she was the Music Cares Person of the Year, I think. Right. Um, but that kind of award goes to somebody who can then be recognised broadly across all categories as being as being somebody of expertise, um, somebody who is qualified to give an opinion, um, not just in, you know, country music, but in, you know, many different aspects of music and the business and all of those things, simply because she's done the time and therefore seen so many changes and encountered so many um, parts and aspects of the industry, which is why then she can be um, applauded by, you know, people who are selling, you know, into the into the millions of albums in the hip hop space and in the R and B space and, you know, in all of these other spaces that are facets of the music industry, but they're not necessarily her lane. Her time and trajectory in the business, you know, sets her sets her kind of you know, to a place where she can actually be informed and qualified on some of those things. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Uh, it's part of its longevity. I, I mean I I think every Every person who you would who you would turn to for critique, or any any person that you would turn to for critique as opposed to criticism, um, their pathway to that position of trust will be different, you know. Um, and and so in her case, yeah, I mean exactly as she described it, she's crossed so many boundaries, crossed so many genres. Um, even though she had this sort of you know kind of extraordinary career in. Uh, in country music, you know, uh, her music, her music's been taken up by so many other artists, and, um, and she has a lot to say. So I feel like she has a lot, and she has a lot to offer. And that, you know, that's why you would want the opinion. I think critique is really just uh, incredibly well informed, well informed opinion. 
Um, and despite um, the taste making being made by data miners and artificial intelligence, um, I, I'm old school enough to believe that um, there is something about the way we, pro the humans process information and the way we um, turn, t you know, turn new ideas out of old ones. That was probably not going to go away anytime soon. And, 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 you know, the world, the world of academia is a classic example of that. You do, you do hear critic, you do hear critical thought all the time. The entire, um, the entire process of academia and the social sciences is described as a discourse, which is that's how they like to think of it. They think of it as a, an ongoing discussion. And so, when I release my findings, that will be a part of a discourse. It's nothing. It's not like, or it's, it's not like, say, for example, science, where I've discovered a new element, or you know, or astronomy, where I've discovered a new star or a new, you know, or I've. I've found something that unravels Hubble's constant, or or whatever it is. You know, I, I, I'm in the social in the social sciences. You know, which is the field that we're really talking that I'm really sort of embedded in. There's a discussion going on, and it's a discussion between people who have got a good reason to be contributing the ideas that they're contributing. And, and what's the semblance of that conversation? I mean, the the discourse is 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 kind of based around, you know, what's going on, what's really going on, is that good or bad, and how do we make it better? Uh, um, yeah. Is that the framework of the conversation? Uh, it depends on which field you're in, I mean, and it depends on which part of the field you're in. So in academic world, things are very, very narrow. Um, so, you know, there'll be a conference, for example, around um, gender in the music industry um, and how that's playing out. So that's a very, very specific conference. There'll be another conference that's about us. A specific band and so it's played out the discourse is actually played out by at people who attend conferences and then release papers that's the actual if you're to find out they're the venues and that's the they're the mechanisms mm -hmm. um but and then they're very and then they're very specific and very tight tightly focused because i think the um the general thrust of what's going on in the in the academic world is trying to refine uh, understanding and be much more clearer about things, but and then particularly find out the nature of so what is actually happening, uh, and then also then being able to understand it, define it, describe it, and then relate cause and effect those sorts of things. Um, um, so, but just the point is in social sciences, it's not a it's not a fixed point; it's a constantly evolving thing. Um, and you, the, the people who are involved and engaged in the discourse, I mean, you know that you don't have much to say. You're not, they're not really listening to you if you put something out there and then nobody, nobody engages with it. <laughs> they ignore you. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I was just going to say, I, I heard a, um, I heard a, a passing comment the other day that if you, if you write a book about failure and nobody reads it, is the book a success? <laughs> well, the book is the book is emblematic of the of the subject matter. Well, you you know, one proves oneself an expert by by the by the very by failing exactly. So in the it, there was something that you said as as I've gone on that journey of okay now I've now I've got this correct definition in my mind, which is that it's the critique that is actually helpful. It's the critique that act, that actually can be more healing than you know encouragement. Because as much as I wish it had been the case that encouragement 
environment has has led me to all of my own best you know personal growth and development the truth is it really isn't it's been the really heartbreaking and awfully gritty um, critique that I've had to somehow take on board and then grow through that has that has helped me become you know better imperfect but better refining with age all the time I like to say um there was something that you said um Jeff about about who you turn to for critique and that is the piece that I'm fascinated by uh how does one how does one in your opinion you know develop the the gumption the grit the ability to learn how to turn to people for critique in a culture that is so driven by criticism which is nothing to do with the work itself and more lobbing personal insults across the hallway yeah it's yes i mean i think criticism is like a critique is like a surgeon's scalpel. You're right. That's a great when you described it as a scalpel. Mm. That's correct. A critique is like a scalpel, um, and criticism is like a shotgun blast to the back of your head. So, um, you can, the the secret of it is, I think, um, growing older, <laughs> um, and and sort of caring less about what the general masses think about you. Um, and sort of coming to terms with that. Uh, that's a hard thing when you're younger. Um, but it can't be impossible. It's not it impossible, be, no. It has to be possible. No, and, I mean, people who operate sort of um, large-scale creative enterprises, I'm thinking in the arts, who have who are younger generally have management who insulate them from criticism, you know, and they go, look, you just let me handle all this stuff. But um, the, the the real, the answer is um, you must have around you people who you trust, who you value and who you respect. Uh, so, I mean, that the first, that's the first thing. You, you've got to have, um, you've got to have uh, people who, when they speak, because, you know, it's brutal, by the way, um, oh, I, 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 am I'm, I'm sitting here recounting and recalling my own experiences. So I, I know, I, you know, I, f I feel that I feel the, the old, the old scars opening up, even as I think about it. <laughs> um, I am, um, I just have this memory of writing this music, um, much when I was much younger and, um, falling in love with it. I think anything that you anything that you make, anything that's a product of your own sort of inner world, there's a part of you that falls in love with it. And you have to, otherwise you don't you don't make it. I mean, um so you produce this thing and you know, it's like you've given birth to this baby uh, and um and then of course somebody walks into the room and says, "Oh, you know, it's complete crap." Well, your first reaction is defensiveness. And in fact, actually your first reaction to any opinion that you don't like is defensiveness. We all have this kind of confirmation bias, um, which is we, we we do, which is this which is this idea that we only really turn to, um, uh, we only accept a belief or an opinion that reinforces what we already believe. So I feel like I feel like um, you've you've the battle is to overwhelm the confirmation bias. Is to be able to go. Uh, how do I? How do I? How do I cope with uh, people who don't agree with what I'm thinking? Who their whose opinions challenge me? Um, and that that's a brutal experience. The first time it ever really happened to me it was actually my wife, and she just said to me, oh, "Yeah, the, 
and she pointed out how it was, I'd, you know, I'd written this piece of music that I thought it was wonderful and amazing and then she just went, oh, you know, but it's this and it's that and it's, that's a cliche and this is the other thing. She was brutal. Um, uh, and I, and my first reaction was just anger and frustration and, and denial but actually pretty quickly that passed because I feared, I, I, I knew that she wasn't, hadn't walked into the room to cut me in two, that she actually loved me and cared for me and wanted me to do well. And so I feel as if that's the, the qualification. You need people who love you and care for you and want you to do well. Um, and you need people who love you and care for you and want you to do well who've got who've got good ears or good eyes or good sense for what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So it's not enough that people love you, but they also have to be in they have to have, be informed in enough to be able to offer informed commentary and informed observation. Because what we're never able to, the truth of it is we're never able to see ourselves clearly and we're never able to see us to work we do clearly. We're all too emotionally attached. We're too emotionally attached to our own identity. Um, we're too emotionally attached to our own sort of the narrative we have of our own lives. Um, we're too emotionally attached to the things that we make out that, are come, that emerge from that identity and that narrative. Um, and you sort of there'd be sort of be something wrong with you if you kind of if you weren't really. Um, so the natural defensiveness that you have against the shotgun blast is great because you need to be able to insulate yourself against all of that sort of uninformed opinion. But at the same time, you have to have people who can step around your own defenses to point out things that you're not noticing. And so I feel like. Um, one of the journeys that I went on with this, apart from the first one being, you know, the first experience of it being my wife who, you know, was ruthless. Um, but gradually I became better at it. I would present stuff to her and, and, and then steal myself for the remarks. But then I began, you value it then when somebody says, oh, no, that's really great because they've, they've already shown, proved themselves willing to point out where the problems are. The thing about it is, Sooner or later, you'll fall out of love with that thing anyway, and you'll come back to it yourself and go, oh, you know, there was a problem with that. Like, you, in any process, you sort of, or creative process, or you're making something, you'll, you'll fall out of love with it a little bit later on. Um, and I feel like what critique does is help you fall out of love with it enough to go, I need to fix that, or I need to work on that, or I need to trim that, or remove that, or add this. You know, it's a kind of a weird process of educating yourself to be completely and utterly, passionately, unrealistically, you know, involved and in love and utterly submerged in the work or whatever it is, and then be able to step back from it and be somewhat dissociative as if you're looking at it sort of critically <coughs> with one part of your mind. There's sort of no middle ground, really. You've got to go from one to the other. And what critiquing, I think what critique does is help you make the shift. And if you're not able to make the shift, it helps you. It makes the shift for you and goes, yes, this is really great. But dot, 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 you know, this is a problem here and that's a problem there. So it's, uh, I feel it's trust um, um, and it's people have to love you and they have to believe in you, but they also have to be um, informed enough in the field so that they're, their observations are really are valuable and not they're just not somebody who loves you saying nice things. Um, and so the, you've really got to intentionally go out of your way and find those people. Um, they can be and they, they'll be they'll be 
you know, they'll, they'll be everywhere. It's just a question of um, finding them and then engaging with that process because you you might think, oh, this person's going to be really great for me. Um, I, I, and then and then you find they're not really invested in you or they don't spend the time or, or they don't care enough about you. I, I, I feel as if somebody, if they really care about you, they will be completely honest when you're asking for it. And they'll take they'll take the risk that the relationship could be damaged um, by the honest an honest moment of feedback. They take the risk. They'll go. The, I, I value this person enough to take the risk. Um, does that make sense? It's a quite a complicated thing. It, I the the other part of that story for me is I came to it also through collaboration and collaborating with great colleagues. Because what's happening is everybody in the room is vulnerable. And and then I also learnt in that process, I was in a band with three or four other guys and we, we were making this music that was incredibly improvisational and you were sort of very vulnerable and we'd make it all in a, in a we'd record these songs in a, in a whole album in a studio in like a day and a half or two days. Um, and you, you are putting, you're putting yourself right out there, but everybody's putting themselves right out there. And so there's a real even playing field and then, um, there was there wasn't a sense in which um, somebody was going to say something to you in order to cut you down and make, and lift themselves up. What there was was generally this sort of there was this ethos going on in the room where everybody knew that what we were trying to accomplish was the best possible version. Um, and in the, in that kind of environment, I, I learned a lot about hearing critique and hearing and adopting ideas from other people who'd sort of come to me who'd come to my work and gone yeah but what if you do this and what if you add that and what if you change this um because them uh in that i learned in that environment to trust their motive so we come back to trust again aren't we well and trust and intention and yeah. oftentimes oftentimes that rule of positive intent you know assume at all times that the intention behind this is is positive is something that that has that has stood me in in good stead it's also something that i think has has at times allowed me to take you know carte blanche criticism something that has just been you know a, a, a pot shot across the bow so to speak um, and to, to take that and then to try and find some some truth in it that I can actually use as critique um, which I think is is I don't know if it's a particularly healthy thing um, but is something that I've learned to do from a young age this you know that, that idea of being able to take those experiences which can sometimes be confrontational at first learn to learn to see what the good intention may be and take something therefore meaningful you know out of it but i think that that is a really that is a hard path and i and i love the idea that you talk about collaboration as being you know one of the one of the ways of unlocking that ability because i don't think it's something that we're naturally born with you know the ability to 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 hear something hard and do something good with it no i mean i think the natural reaction is defensiveness Mm. That's a natural I'm, reaction, you know. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious because because of your work, you will have found yourself um, both being somebody who who seeks critique, but also is asked for critique. Um, and so, what what happens when the tables are turned? What you know? What have you What have you learned about critique um, through the through the practice of giving it? Um, you know, is there is there something that that you've noticed about that that's that's worthwhile for us to to think about or talk about? Yeah, I've well, I learned 
one thing I learned recently is that um, if people don't respect you, they're not going to hear anything that you say. So uh, there's a, a, there are a number of uh, variables and one of them is how much respect they hold you in, you know. Mm. Uh, and I've been in a situation recently where I, um, I made the mistake of thinking a person actually held me in higher respect than they actually did. Um, and the whole thing, the whole discussion uh, in sort of dissolved into acrimony um, pretty quickly. So um, I feel like respect is a, you have to you have to know that you're respected. Mm. Otherwise, people will be asking you f- for your opinion, asking you to contribute your ideas, contribute your thoughts, but they're not. They don't really think of them as being important. Mm, mm-hmm. They don't. Um, so that's a that's a big one. Um, I've learnt to um, converse with people who are um, who've invited me to comment in a very gentle way. Under normal circumstances, that's the way I prefer to mm-hmm. work. What are the hallmarks of gentleness? For you? I would be saying things like um, I would be asking questions more than making statements. Ah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those, for me anyway, um, how would you, and I would be saying, how would you feel about dot, 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 what would you think about this? Is there a possibility of dot, dot, dot? Is there, a, I'm just giving you some sort of sample starting. Mm-hmm. Is there, a uni- is there a universe or is there a world in which dot, dot, dot? Um, is there, um, I, I say, how would you feel if I was to offer some thoughts? You know, I, you know, I always start with those sorts of, even when I'm um, having the discussion, it generally is peppered with a lot of pulse-checking activity, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I also in the because I have a lot of I do a lot of sort of Skype or FaceTime consulting um, and so that allows me to check things like people's reactions to um, the moments mm. so it's um, there's a lot of um, I don't jump in with both feet I sort of try and go there gradually there's a lot to be said for if I've got, if I feel like I've got a difficult or a challenging thing that I would like people to come to, if I've got a big idea, I like to try and work to it gradually. So there's sort of a, um, a almost like a logical progression. Mm. Is there ever? Uh, do you find yourself because this was something that uh, that again came up in in my conversation with April? Um, this idea that 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 you can build a group of people around you who who will offer critique without invitation, um, and and I'm curious about that because I think we talk about that. Um, we talk about that with kind of a thinly veiled kind of hat tip to 
authenticity that if we all somehow live authentically um, that that somehow makes us more capable or gives us permission not just to um, not just to have people speak into our lives when we invite them um, but that you know if if you have those people around you so whether that's in creative work or just in in living that if you have those people around you that they that you can trust them to take it upon themselves to speak into your life when necessary but I'm not I'm not 100% convinced that that's true. Um, I'm, but I'm not firmly convinced one way or the other. I'm, I'm more curious. You know, is is there anybody? Do you have an? Do you, would you now speak or offer critique without invitation? No, um, I wouldn't, um, because I the very thing that you're talking about. I wonder whether or not it's sort of. It's an, that's an unusually close set of relationships. I mean, the only person who um, successfully offers critique into my world mm. is my wife, and she and she as well to me. Uh, uh, all my all my kids actually, who are adults and mm. um, are quite are, are frequently critiquing, but they do it. It's um, it's a long established relationship. These are. Uh, I, I, like a like a, that's a these are foundational relationships. This is my you know these are the people I've lived with for the last 25, 30 years. You know so that's a pretty profound and serious relationship. So I don't I don't offer critique unless I'm invited. Mm. I, I've been in some situ- look. I'm going to say there's a caveat. I've been in some situations where people have actually put stuff in the table and they feel like they're inviting critique, but they haven't. And then they're and so I'll offer the I'll I'll ask would you are you interested in some uh, thoughts here? And they'll go, yeah, but I'm sort of judging the whole moment even as I'm having that discussion, you know, like tr- like ready to backpedal back out if at the first sign of mm. freaking out. I mean, and then what I try and do is help them to see something really great about their work as much as to offer this possibility that it could be better. Mm. I've, I've been in, look, I've had some situations where I've been invited have critique. I know that this isn't actually. This is not strictly speaking answering your question because I to strictly answer your question. What I would say is, I I suppose I'm sitting on the fence. I've in the way that you are. I've seen plenty of situations where people have constructed environments where everybody says, "Look, um, I've got everybody around, and you know this is the group. You can speak into my life whenever you want." But frequently, I've found that even in those circumstances, when even when people have made that offer, they don't really want it. they're saying that they're saying that and then i've then i've been in other situations where well they get the vulnerability badge if they say it if they say it they get the vulnerability badge they get the humble badge but it's it's actually following through on that that requires all of the all of the grit and the humility Uh, uh, yeah well the pain you know really so i've been in situations where the other side has been true which is look we're going to have you know, a great sort of radical honesty and accountability here. And then what I found is those situations were more or less just, were more or less aimed at offering criticism actually to one against one individual and then preserving leaders from it. Mm. If that made sense, it was all it was all unidirectional and was directional away from the people who orchestrated it. Mm. Um, and so I'm a bit. I'm a bit because I'm a bit suspicious of human nature. You know, I think if left to our own devices, we um, you know, descend into Lord of the Flies. 
Well, we choose to believe scene. we choose to believe the best about ourselves and the worst about everybody else. I think Correct. is our is our default narrative, which which Correct. allows us to escape the need for for dealing with critique. You know, on that Correct. deeply personal level. But then, as soon as it becomes about work or about you know creativity, then I think there's there's another extra complex layer of humanity that starts to right. come into play. Right. Right. I mean, you know, I have, Tash, I have a couple of mantras that are the short sort of shorthand versions of describing my worldview. And one of them is, it's a bell curve, um, you know, which is, <laughs> <laughs> you can understand human nature by understanding the bell curve. Uh, and then the other, and then my other shorthand um, thing is Lord of the Flies, you know, which is that famous novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kid's novel. It's not really a kid's novel, but it's about a group of kids who get marooned on an island. I'm just talking to all the millennials and the Generation Z who might not have read this. <laughs> And and in a sense, in a sense, these kids were meant to sort of create this beautiful utopia because they hadn't been spoiled by the world. But what happens is, even after a couple of weeks of being marooned, their worst natures mm. emerge. And you know, anyway, so uh, you know, there. Um, I, I I think Lord of the Flies is a is and the bell curve apply in a lot of those artificially constructed situations. Um, I wasn't. I have two stories that I want to tell. I think about um, critique. Um, where I was invited to give it, and one was an organisation, an entire organisation uh, that was an arts organisation, and they were sort of all um, kind of it was a community-minded volunteer group, and I and they invited me to come to their national executive and and speak to them, and so I had some. They asked me to develop some thoughts to offer on their future, and I I did, <laughs> and and I just. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a sense for how for how it all turned out already. <laughs> I wasn't invited back. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, I actually offered what I felt were, you know, was a crucial question, which is for them to actually consider completely everything that they're doing. What was their I felt like, you know, what is your function, you mm. know, and what are you, you know, what are you actually doing? Um, and it was like, uh, it was like the fish slapping dance in Monty Python, you know, when when suddenly the big guy gets the big fish out and whacks the other guy, the little guy, and he falls off the edge of the pier and into the water. You know, it was a moment of it was they were deeply offended. Um, uh, and then this other story in which I was invited actually for a number of years to to be on a panel of people who were critiquing songs at a music conference. <laughs> so it was in the so it was in the US actually. Mm-hmm. And I would sit in a room um, uh, at this um, music and arts conference, and people would put their songs into a uh, like the CDs. And this was in the days of CDs. They would put their CDs and their song lyrics into a box, and there was a room of about two hundred and fifty people, you know. And there was me, and then uh, somebody who was a very, um, I suppose, pastoral, community-minded person from the main organ from the parent organisation. She was sitting next to me, and then there were two producers from New York. Um, and then the guy was running it, and there was me. And the, um, the instructions we had were this. Be honest, be truthful, um, I mean, be kind, but be honest and be truthful. There's no point in um, in, in helping, pe- you know, in, in sort of soft-soaping people whose work isn't up to the scratch, you know, because they said, the argument was they've paid to come to this, they've paid to hear critique. And so there's me, we're all, the four of us are all nodding, you know. Uh, so we all in, file into this room, 250 people, and i got a bunch of friends who are sitting down the front. Um, and they play this, they pick this first piece of music out of the, um, out of the box. And um, honestly, it was one of the most, it was woeful, it was awful. Um, 
and we all sort of everybody sat through it uncomfortably. And the guy who'd been the who was the moderator of the whole thing had actually explained how the critique was going to work. He actually gave the room the same set of instructions that he that he'd given us. You know. Wow. Right. Okay. This is so, reality TV before reality TV. It's real. Exactly. Exactly. Um, this was actually this was at the same time as American Idol. Right. Um, and. Uh, I quickly was no, became known as Simon Cowell, actually. That gives you an idea how this went. <laughs> um, but what happened was I, uh, I I listened to this piece of music and I'm sitting there going, what in my head I'm going, what the heck am I going to say that is positive or polite? Uh, it was awful. So anyway, fortunately, they handed it to the, uh, the woman, the you know, the, the caring pastoral person. Mm-hmm. And she... And she she said, "Oh, I love your heart. I can, I hear, I hear what you're doing. I just, when I hear that music, I just hear your heart, and I just want to encourage you to keep going and and just do what you're doing. And I just, I just so love your heart. And, and it was like that, you know. She went on, and I'm out of the corner of my eye looking at these two New York producers next to me, who are two African American guys who looked hipper than I will ever look." And I was looking at them and they were looking at me like, and I'm going, dude, they better ask you next because I don't know what to say to that. And they were <laughs> looking at me with the same expression, you know. And and these guys are really hip too, by the way, and, and they were really great producers. And then so immediately they turned to these two guys, the two producers, and said, what are you guys? And they just said, oh, well, we don't have anything much to add to that, you know. And I went, oh, thanks. So they handed it to me and I just said this. I said, look, in songwriting there are four uh, elements of song of a song. There's the melody, there are the lyrics, there's the chords, the harmony, and the rhythm in which you hear these things. And I said, and there are well-established ways of understanding um, what is what amounts to good quality, a good quality lyric. There are good ways of there are good well-established methods of understanding and knowing what amounts to good a good quality lyric. Good techniques for good quality lyric. Good techniques for good quality. Melody, good techniques for putting good chords together, you know. And I basically went through these four things very briefly. And I said, and in your song, I can hear none of those techniques. <laughs> and she started to cry. She was standing up. There's a room of 250 people. Oh, she sort of, oh. she started to cry and then choked it back and then nodded. And I said, um, and so talk to me afterwards. Uh, the room went quiet. You know, talk to me. I said, talk to me afterwards. I feel like it's it's absolutely possible for you to learn any of these techniques, all of, any of these, and all of these techniques, uh, and then be able to take whatever songs you're writing to, you know, to make them to improve them. So I I, I said to the this woman in public, I said, I realise it feels like you just presented me with your baby, and I've just you know told you this is the ugliest baby alive. I, I said, however, the thing is that your songs will be better once you learn what these techniques are and how to apply them. And she looked at me and nodded, and then the whole room broke out in applause. Um, and so that whole session went for an hour. Uh, at the end, she came up to me and sought me out, and she said, thank you so much for being so honest. She said that was hard to hear, but she said everybody just says nice things to me, and I know that there are problems with it, but I don't know what to do. And I sort of pointed her in some directions of where you could go to learn songwriting. You know, uh, mm. um, so yeah, there were two. There are two stories. One, I was <laughs> one. I was never invited back, and the other one, in which I sort of gained this 
unenviable reputation of being the brutal guy. But what but what the songwriter gained was the help that she'd been looking for, right? Right. And then exactly. And then the other thing that happened was there was this in that very same in that very same uh, session, you know, went for an hour. I mean, we got to hear about five or six songs. We got to the last, the very last song was an absolute cracker. And um, I listened to it and they came to me first and I just said, I can't think of anything else to say about this song except I really love it. It's fabulous. I think it's just got so much juice. Well, the place erupted because if I'm... If I've demonstrated that I'm, I was, I demonstrated throughout the hour that I was fair-minded, that I had a set of standards and a set of principles that I was applying that were real and genuine, and then I was able to point to some specific things in that final song, they went, yeah, wow, okay, so this is for real. You know, uh, I haven't forgotten that. And I think that that is probably at the crux of it. You know, if if I think that that we we throw criticism around way too liberally, and we don't know what to do with it, um, and it's hard to make criticism useful because it's it's generally uninformed and unqualified. But critique is actually a heavy thing. You know, um, when you were talking before about about the the few foundational relationships that you have where people might offer critique without invitation, you know, w- what I was really th- what I was thinking about in that moment when you were talking about it was actually it's because y- y- taking the opportunity to critique somebody comes with a hefty responsibility. I mean, you there's an emotional burden that you carried on that day, speaking the hard truth to you know a woman who probably didn't want to hear it um but but that's the weight of that's the weight of what you carry when you when you offer critique or when you bring critique to someone and then when you on the converse when you ask for critique you know if you choose well you you know that you're actually asking people to do a heavy thing because they can they can wound you they can hurt you they can tell you something that you don't want to hear um yes but, oh, totally. But it's a but it's a brave thing, and that's and that's I think the the thing, right? Criticism is so lightweight. Um, what is it that they say? You know, to today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish and chips, or at least they used to. Right. Um, uh, well, yes. Back when we had newspapers. <laughs> um, yes, back when but, we had fish and chips. Yeah, but the um, but there is something there is something about that um, that the throwaway the throwaway nature of criticism. Um, I'm curious, um, as 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 we round it out, is is there is there one particular uh, moment of critique um, for you that has that has been particularly shaping in your creative work, or that has has been transformative? Mm, wow, that's wow, that's a really good question. Now I'm thinking about that. Um, while while I'm thinking about that, I want to say um, I want to say I, I so agree with that with your parsing of critique and criticism, that there's a responsibility. I so agree with that. I think maybe that's one of the defining things and that's something I haven't articulated uh, before, but yes, there's a responsibility. Now, I think, think, and you're right to say that criticism is so lightweight, it's very casual. I think um, criticism, I think, might say more about the person who's offering it Mm. than the work. And it's to do with really what the intention. I think the intention of the, the I think the intention of critique is to improve the work, and I think the intention of criticism is to improve the person who made the critic the critic the critical observation. I I feel like criticism the 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 the, uh, the end goal of critique is to disappear, 
in the improvement in the improved work that the improved work in lives. Does that make sense? So that that's another way of articulating the responsibility issue. Yeah, that's um, I think utterly profound. Actually, you know, for for people who are for you know for people who aspire to become the highly regarded to become you know the 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 critic for example um you mm. know that that actually you know the goal is and if i translate this into if i translate this into the work of food writing and what it is to be a food critic and the number mm. of food critics who actually themselves become the story and themselves become you know the all defining um, the all-defining paradigm as opposed to the story and the experience of the chef or the restaurant or the creative work that they're trying, you know, to do. And that's the moment where it becomes very hard to take a food critic seriously because yes. they've inserted themselves so far into the actual critique um, that it loses it loses its substance. And that's what and that's what I think you're saying really about the 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 disappearing into disappearing into the the work becoming yeah, becoming better, becoming more. That yes. is that is an idea that will sit with me for quite some time. Yeah, I feel I feel like I feel I haven't. I mean, I think that comes from the responsibility that the I think that you articulated about responsibility. I think that's where that comes from. That's the um, that is the responsibility I feel that you carry when you're critiquing. And I, and I don't think that people who criticise are carrying who, who are using criticism. I don't think they're carrying any responsibility. Um, the um, Except that they want to be heard. I, uh, I'm still struggling with trying to find a defining moment. Um, I'm trying to think of some. I remember having. I think I've had a couple of people who've mentored me uh, creatively over different in different areas. My, my current supervisor, my current PhD supervisor, um, you know, I would critique my writing. Um, this, these days, he just looks at it and, you know, doesn't say very much, which is normally a good sign. <laughs> um, but um, my earlier, my, he supervised me for my master's degree and he would just ask questions, you know, why? Like he would circle a whole bunch of writing and go, why? Or what's the point? Or, you know. Mm. So, I mean, he was slapping me over the head, in, you know, in a good, in the academic way. Um, I think in creative terms I've been... Critiquing has come from people who've mentored me. A couple of um, older guys who are great music producers, you know, um, mm. who, uh, you know, would. I'm, and I'm, tr I'm sort of trying to think of, there's one in particular I'm trying to think of, but nothing that he said was not peppered with four letter words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, we handle a bit of that on this podcast from time to time. But. Yeah, I've, if you can imagine, if you can imagine those moments, you know, where he just turns to you and goes, you know, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> 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 Except it went on for a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. Oh, to the extra words, um, you know, his anger and like his frustration was not the. And his and part of that was I would work with him on projects, and there was this, you know, and there was he was a live recording engineer, and there was one song that we were working on together. We were doing. He was mixing it. It's a live recording. It was a Doctor Bob thing, actually, and uh, we were mixing on an automated desk and the whole thing. And he and he, and he got this particular song, and he was halfway through getting pulling a mix together. And he goes, "This isn't working." He stood up, 
he deleted all the automation and he stood up and he took hold of all the faders with his hands and he essentially danced and mixed the song live, pushing things up and back uh, like a piece, like like actually composing a piece of music. With, I mean, hmm. And he was literally moving the faders with his hands all the way through to the end and went, I'm not going to get a better mix than that. And I saw, and it was, but he was dancing the whole time. It was like he wasn't, he was so totally engaged in the music and I felt like I learned a great deal from those sort of moments, you know. Mm. Um, um, Armas, and I think I'm just trying to think of a moment where I had a moment. I'll probably, you know what, I'll probably wake up at 2 in the morning and go, oh, yeah, there was this. <laughs> well, you can you can send me a message and tell me and we'll add it to the, we'll add it to the producer's notes at the end. <laughs> I was so convinced about the power of actually having a lot of collaborative thinkers Mm. Uh, when I was at one point, I was running a community arts college and I had a production and I was producing and directing and had written, written these, you know, these theatrical productions, sort of musical theatrical productions. And one of the ones that actually in the end was, became quite well-known and quite successful in the, in the world that I was working in at the time, um, the first time we ever ran it, I would have this process in during rehearsals where I would get everybody who was at the top of the the department, well, I would subdivide the entire thing into different departments. Like there was an acting department, there was a music department, there was a, like a production department, there was dancing, you know, so was, there was visual art. So everybody who was responsible for something creatively, um, in a sense, had their own production team and they would essentially work on their bits and then we would assemble it. And at the end of all the rehearsals where we were putting this thing together, I would sit, we would, after all the, the cast had gone home, I would have all the, the team leaders sit around and go, okay, where are we going wrong? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, are our, what are our problems? What are our problems? And, you know, and that was for me a great way of, and I would sit there and you would have people telling you, oh, this is crap and, you know, and it was, you basically had to take it on the chin. And the best part of the process, I think, when we had, we would do a preview show where we had uh, 12 or 15 people with, who were completely random completely, um, you know, Joe Public, and we would bring them in and do a preview show and then hear their thoughts and hear their comments. And I think maybe those times were really amazing for me because uh, it's amazing even when you have a group of people who you've told, you've given them permission, come on, where are we going wrong? Come on, where are we going wrong? And uh, even then you would still miss it and then you would have your preview audience would come in and go, I don't understand this and what's happening here and what's going on. And then I would take their criticism back or the critique, sorry, I would take their critique back to the um, back to the group. And then we would we would wrangle it, you know. But what was fascinating was how much group think there still emerges, even mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that in, in one, ter- uh, one terrible um episode of this uh, of this one episode of this particular production that we did you know the final moment was meant to be a tear-jerking moment of great power and passion and seriousness and instead the entire this was the opening night the entire audience laughed in the final <laughs> moment right it's completely the wrong thing and I'm sitting there <laughs> and there's a thousand people in the room you know and I'm sitting there and, and it's like you you want the earth to open up and swallow you you know and everybody's supposed to be Sitting on the edge of their chair with tears in their eyes, instead they're crying. They're like, la- and instead of crying, they're laughing. You go, I've completely failed. Um, 
Anyway, we got we sort of got through it somehow. I forget what how <laughs> I just I sort of went blank for a while, and we got I got all of the team backstage, and I go how how come nobody saw that? Mm-hmm. How come how come nobody saw that coming? And they all said to me, <clears throat> even our preview audience didn't see that coming. And I went, yeah, 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 you're right. But it's that stayed with me <laughs> as I. Oh, that's probably not exactly the answer you're looking for, but it was like for me, and it was incredibly instructive that you just can never assume anything um, when it comes to that sort of thing. And ne- you at the in that sort of in those sort of processes, I feel I feel like every time you take on on board critique, you are minimising your chances of failure. You're minimising your chances of people laughing when they should have been crying or crying when they should be laughing. You know. Hmm. Yeah. That that is profound. That is that is profound. I think the other thing that the that the story ab- about the laughing audience um, tells us uh, is that critique critique must have a moment of introducing something new and unexpected to us. You know, the the unseen yeah. thing. That's the power yeah. of critique. It, it brings the unseen thing to light, and then yeah. allows us to do something with it, which is powerful. Yes, yeah. Um, so I am always, always grateful um, and honoured when when you take the time, and the conversations oh, are always Tash. meaningful. Thank you, Tash. I feel like we've just gone well over forty five minutes too. I think that's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, but you I'm know, sorry. it's all, it's all, it's all the good stuff. It's all the good stuff. Um, I uh, I look forward to our next conversation, whether it's whether it's spurred by by one of your emails or or one of mine. Um, I'm. I, I. This has been. This has been for me personally, um, a really helpful conversation about about evaluate, evaluating criticism and critique in my own life. Um, so I'm. So I'm thankful for that, and and I hope that um, everybody else finds it just as just as helpful. Oh, thanks, Tash. You're you're very kind. You're very kind. It's been fun. All right, and we will see you. Well, we'll see you and the Zebra Collective again shortly. Indeed, you will. Hi, it's Tash, and it's time for the credits. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Transformationist. Please subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever you listen to it, and share it with a friend. Visit thetransformationist.org for links to the resources mentioned in this episode, and to subscribe to our email updates. You can also share your transformation story with us there, and I would love to hear from you. As always, this episode is produced by Michael Yoda at Truthwork Media. Music is by Hans Van Vliet. For more about me and the transformation work I do, check out the website. This show is proudly made possible by Solar Feeder Consulting.